Hi friends, welcome back to Magnolia Radio. Today my guest is John Rash. He is my neighbor, but he is also a filmmaker, documentary filmmaker and short filmmaker, photographer, um, professor here at the University of Mississippi in film studies and works in the uh, Center for the Study of Southern Culture. And he has a thing called the Southern Punk Archive, where they archive all of this old material from punk shows and punk bands and really really cool and we had a really nice chat it was really fun talking to him and so y'all listen up well i guess i'll say like you're my neighbor you live right around the corner from me you haven't been here long yeah. uh, but you're from north carolina originally is that right yeah i was born in western north carolina in a very small rural county uh avery county and um you know, to give you an example of how small it was, my high school had about 700 students total. It was the only high school in the entire county. Yeah. And just public school, public school. Yeah. I mean, the only there were, I don't think there were any private schools in my entire county. You had to go wow. to the next county over to find a private school, which is where App State is. Um, Watauga County, where Boone, North Boone. Carolina. Yeah, Boone, North Carolina. Boone yeah. was the big city for us. And yeah. Boone is definitely not a bit like it's not even as big as Oxford, you know. So, right. Like, um, well, I bet it's about the size that Oxford used to be because uh, mm. I grew up just south of here. I kind of the same about a 30 minute drive to the college town and Oxford was the big city then. But, you know, this was uh, 20 or 30 years ago and that it wasn't very big then. So. Yeah, it's about a 45 minute drive from my parents house to Boone. And, you know, we'd go to Boone to go to the movie theater. Yeah. Because there's no, there's no movie theater. That's how it was in, here. Yeah. Oxford had the little Cinefor, uh, which now we have what two theaters yeah two full theaters um but at the time it was just a little four four screen movie theater house it was over here in the same location that it's in now but it was just much smaller uh i saw lord of the rings there when it first came out i remember that i saw uh the best time i ever had at the movies there was napoleon dynamite came out and me and my buddies went to see it and there were like all of these college kids in there and it was a riot because no one had ever heard of this movie before and That's, it was just really fun yeah i have those memories too of like birthdays at the movies yeah I, mean, I wonder if kids even do that now you know it's like i mean you can see most movies on on your i don't know streaming but like movies not quite as much as an event i think for kids as it used to be i feel like kids don't go to the movies the way we did either you know like we didn't have me and you the way i don't know how old you are i'm 43 yeah i'm so. four, 46 this year 46 so. yeah. yeah yeah we didn't grow up with all these devices and, and just w streaming you know like ways to watch a movie i, I had a video store uh did you have a video store oh, yeah. in your town? no i remember yeah. no i specifically remember my parents went to the video store when you still had to rent the vcr and the tapes together because people didn't have their own VC. So like, this I don't was, even know if we had that option. So. Th this was an event, you know, it was like yeah. the fir first, like, I think it was Radio Shack actually, like yeah. where they first got it from. And they came home with um, Romancing the Stone. Oh yeah. And uh, Indiana Jones. And oh, wow. those are the first two movies we ever watched at home on uh, VHS. That's some, good, that's some good ones. Totally. Like uh, classics. So is that the beginning of like when you really just got into film? No, I have to say I actually like always thought film was this sort of black magic that was like unobtainable. Right. Um, and I did fall in love with photography fairly early. I remember getting like a point and shoot camera 
And, you know, that's like you would take your roll of film to the drugstore and they would develop it. And like you'd get it a couple of days later. Or if you wanted to pay more, you could get it, I guess, the same day. Yeah. And, you know, I was just taking photos of flowers and trees and stuff around my grandmother's house. And I thought it was fascinating. And that actually was like after having a photographer visit my elementary school and show us how to make pinhole cameras. And I think I asked my parents for a camera because that was such a cool experience that we got to make these cameras out of oatmeal boxes. Yeah. But you needed like a wet dark room to develop the prints, which the photographer set up in our elementary school classroom. My parents were like, well, we can't do that, but we'll get you this point and shoot. And then you can take the roll of film to CVS or whatever. So it was like a 35 millimeter. Yeah, just of? 35 millimeter, a little point and shoot. But yeah. like, I love that thing. And like I little wind up camera uh, yeah totally yeah. i don't think there was any electronics in it at all i mean there might have been just to advance the film like it, i can't even remember honestly i, I remember it was black I, I don't even know what brand it was but um i guess you don't still have it no, no. unfortunately yeah. <laughs> and i thought i still had that photo that we made in the pinhole camera um somewhere in my mom's house and i looked for it for hours about two years ago and she told me she cleaned stuff out at some point. What is a pinhole camera? I'm not sure I actually know how that works. I mean, so all you need to make a photo is like a darkened container with um, a small amount of light coming in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the way like professional cameras work is you control the size of the hole that allows that light to come in um, by changing the dials. Like it changes the aperture. So with a very small aperture, I mean, literally just a pinprick into the side of an oatmeal box, you can tape a piece of um, film or a piece of um, photographic paper Mm -hmm. into the oatmeal box. And basically this is like a small version of what they call like a camera obscure, which is where they make like a room into like a camera. Yeah. But that small pinhole allows enough light in that it exposes the photo paper on the other side of the oatmeal box to the light that's coming through. And it makes it makes the image that that little hole is it's a porthole out into the You're world. Right. So it just saves that image of when that light comes through the first time. Exactly. So yeah. you you literally you put a piece of tape over the hole um, and you pull the tape off and you count how many ever seconds that you think that it needs to like expose the paper and then you close it and then you go put that piece of photographic paper into developer. So there's no film involved. It's a direct exposure onto the photographic paper. And that's um, really cool. Yeah. It was fascinating. And I was like, this is magic. So, you know, (laughs) I, I really loved it and actually ended up in university studying art education and had a concentration in graphic design and photography. And this was right when digital like Photoshop two or three had come onto the world. And were you into digital photography by college? Uh, No, it wasn't. Digital photography wasn't. It's interesting because Photoshop kind of existed and was more publicly available for a few years before people really had like wide access to digital cameras. Mm hmm. It's uh, that, that just, is strange. Yeah, it yeah. just occurred to me now to that like it. Photoshop kind of happened first because yeah. it was more about like scan in your negative right. or make something completely digital native in Photoshop 
I think digitizing so, photos was a really big thing at that time too with a scanner. Yeah, you could right. you could you scan, could scan all print. of any photos that you had. Right. Yeah, right. And like, you know, people made collage, digital collages yeah. and things like that. So, yeah, it was like people who had digital cameras at that point were like millionaires, you know what yeah. I mean? Like like they were like digital cameras were not obtainable to the the poor consumer. But then Within a few years, I think of me graduating, digital cameras really had hit in sort of prime time. And it's interesting because like just a couple of years after I graduated from undergrad, I got a job teaching digital photography at a school, a community college in North Carolina that had a long tradition. It was a, gr- a great school, very you know well-known. People would move from all over the country to go there to study photography, even though it was a small community college. But their history was in traditional darkroom photography, and they had just mm. started to look for someone to teach digital. Yeah. So I was really lucky that I had sort of been exposed to that in university because I was really not trained well in the darkroom. Right. I'd taken a couple of black and white classes, but like I, I wouldn't have been confident teaching it. Yeah. But it, somehow I got a job teaching digital. So the students would take a year of traditional photography and then they would come into my class and I would teach them digital and I worked there for about eight years doing that and along the way while I was doing that Canon introduced the 5D which was the first still camera that had great video capabilities Mm -hmm. and that's when I started to get into video editing and started to think about making films and documentaries and things like that because Honestly, it was just because it became accessible, you know. Right. So at this point, you had already you already have a bachelor's degree, and you're teaching at a community college, right? Before you even start thinking about documentary. Yeah, I mean, I know, was or film at all. Yeah, I was. I mean, video. I thought of myself as a photographer. Yeah. And like I had been publishing, I published this zine for like seven years that like ended up being um, distributed through Tower Records. Um, oh, that's cool. Um, like I was, I think I was like the peak of it like printing 5,000 issues I think that's awesome yeah it was pretty it was pretty crazy it was just like something that I did out of my house yeah Um, but the funny thing about that is digital like the internet kind of killed that because around the time that I got the job as photo instructor pretty much all magazines were like going online yeah and this is the early 2000s around then. this was early 2000s so this was like myspace era right you know yeah yeah. and people were starting to put their ad money into online magazines and not necessarily so like that's the only way i could afford to print those magazines yeah was through ad sales and i sold my ads super cheap i wasn't really making money on it It was sort of like a passion project but but yeah in the long run i ended up taking the job at the community college and I stopped publishing the magazine because I was like, I can't do both of these things. It's going to take my entire paycheck to do this now because I can't sell ads anymore because everyone's buying online ads for online zines. And I'm not interested in doing that. Right. Like I like the tactile. And what was that zine called? Unfortunately, it was named <laughs> slave, which, slave. you know, yeah. like there was like conceptual rap- rationale behind it. But I think, in in my mind now, I would not name a magazine that, right. you know, like, but I, it's sort a, of a punk rock type oh, zine, yeah. though, I assume. 
Yeah, it was well. The focus was um, DIY art, culture, and politics. Okay, so it was definitely from a punk rock perspective, but not everything in it was like explicitly punk. Like yeah. you know, like I interviewed a guy who was actually a professor at a local college who um, made biodiesel and like had converted the engine of his. Um, Volkswagen to like run on biodiesel and like yeah. he was like going around to restaurants and getting their French fry oil and that's how he gassed his car, you know. So like I remember hearing those stories. I was involved in the DIY sort of punk scene in Memphis around the same time, uh, and I remember uh, my friends of ours in this band called Pez, which I think you know. I think at one point they had had a van that ran off of that type of biodiesel that that's they awesome. were trying to tour in. And they were, their whole idea was like, oh, we can just go to like the back of every McDonald's along the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, it's, and fuel I think up it's our van, but. fairly labor intensive because you have to filter out all the like right. crap that's in the oil. But like, yeah, but this guy had done it and like he wasn't punk at all. Yeah. He was just like, you know, like a dude with cool eco policy. Probably an old of. hippie though. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but you know, like I was like, that's awesome. I want to interview this guy. Yeah. So like, it was mostly just stuff like that that like I thought like was worth exposing, but like it also had like it was very heavily influenced by like Punk Planet and like mm. Maximum Rock and Roll. Like it was right. that same format. Like it was like nicer. It looked a lot like Punk Planet, which you know I guess people might not know that reference now, but like Punk Planet was like sort of this quasi professional level. Like it was more of a magazine than a zine. It right. had like a color cover. Yeah. Had a little bit nicer newsprint. And that's kind of what I did with mine. Like we always had like a color poster fold out in the middle. A couple of issues came with like a free C D or a seven inch, you know, and like it was it was great. Like that's I, cool. It, it was it was sort of part of my identity in the world for, you know, half a decade. So So what came after that? Well, I started teaching and I sort of fell into like focusing more on photography and um, my job teaching photography. And then around that time, you know, as I said earlier, like video started to be part of the skill set of most professional photographers. So I started learning that. And also, you know, as you mentioned before, I only had a bachelor's degree. So I... um being sort of the lowest man on the totem pole at the community college and not having a master's degree, I the financial crisis hit 2008, and I was like, you know, like I might want to step up to the university level at some point. Mm-hmm. And uh, college enrollment starting to go down right now because of the financial crisis. And yeah. if there's cutbacks in the arts, which is always the first to get cut anytime that happens, I might be the first to go because right. I have the least seniority here. Yeah. Like I was like a good. 15 years younger, I think, than any of the other instructors in my department. So, you know, we would have yeah, been the digital ne- photography guy is definitely the first guy on the y- list. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> so, so I started applying to grad schools and I got into Duke's program, which was focused around documentary, um, which was, an, you know, evolved out of the Center for Documentary Studies, which was this, you know, kind of like very well known, um, very unique nation, like the, very unique even sort of like within the entire nation for like their approach of teaching documentary. Yeah. So I, I got in there and had a little bit of imposter syndrome. I was like, Oh man, like, okay. Like I got this job at this community college that I had actually thought about going to as a student and now I'm teaching here. And then like eight years later, I was like, Oh, I got into this school that I never thought I could actually attend. So like, yeah. I feel like I've always sort of like fallen into things that maybe I really had no business doing, but then sort of figured it out along the way and 
at some point at least became proficient, you know? So, right. But that program at Duke really changed my life. I mean, it actually like, I went from doing what you might call like video production to making films, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I could have gone in that program because the program was open to all medium. Like I could have done still photography the entire time, gotten my MFA and come out with a great photo portfolio, probably a better photographer, but I chose to learn something new. Mm-hmm. So I took a lot of classes that were focused around filmmaking and I made a film for my thesis and it got into some great film festivals and I was like, Oh, well maybe I'm kind of good at this. And yeah. like, I just kept going from there and, and what that, was the, what was that film? Uh, it's called mm-hmm. Yangtze Drift. So it's a film. It's I watched that today. Oh, you did? I did. Okay. Yeah, because I, I was looking you. Uh, you know, I know you, and I know some of your work, but I just wanted to go through and maybe see some old stuff that I haven't seen. It's really beautiful, I, and I'm, you can really tell uh, that you were a photographer first because there's so many of those starts with the still scene. Well, starts with the kind of like the drone. I guess it's a drone. It's like, you know what? This, this is a great story. Okay. So that film starts with a shot. That's an aerial shot. It's an aerial shot. Yeah. Um, so the film's about the Yangtze river Uh and the Yangtze river is the longest river in, um, China. Uh Um, I think it's the second longest river in Asia, like after the Ganges. So it's like the Mississippi River of it, China. It is. Yeah. It's the Mississippi River of China. Exactly. Yeah. Except from going from north to south, it goes um, west to east. Yeah. And um, the idea was sort of like they had built the this dam called the Five Gorges on um, the Yangtze River about five years before I started that film project. And it significantly changed um parts of the river like it put entire villages underwater mm-hmm. and there had been a lot of films made about that specifically like right like the five gorges and what's going to happen but no one had really made a film about the river after that yeah and no one had really looked at places outside of the five gorges so like that's what made me start thinking about the river and i was like i'm i just want to go and like travel as far as i can on this river and uh-huh. film whatever happens and put it together and just sort of think of it as like, instead of like, what province am I in? What city am I in? Think of the river as a singular place. Yeah. And just sort of see who the people are that are by the river, how they use the water. Um, and so I went to um, this really large city, Chongqing, that... Um, has this beautiful bend in the river that sort of goes around the bottom of the city like a peninsula, you know? Yeah. And like, it was sort of thinking about like, how could I show that? That's just great geography. Like, it, yeah. it's going to look great on film. And there's a gondola that goes across the river that people use to commute from one side of the city to the other. Oh, okay. Um, Wait, what's that? I, I, I'm sorry. I don't know. It's a cable car. A cable car. Yeah, it's right. just a cable car, you know? Okay. And like, and it costs like, 50 cents to ride, you know? Wow. So like, so like I, I could go get on the cable car on the east side of the city and ride across the river to the west side of the city and just look for shots, you know? Yeah. And I was like, well, actually this is the shot, like moving across the river. Uh-huh. So I got this clamp because <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have it like drones. I mean, again, this was like, Maybe two years before drones were like. That's what I was wondering. I was like, this film seems older than this drone technology would, because it looks so good. 
it's such a really well shot scene so it's so crisp and clear you know i was like it has to be a you know some kind of like super high def drone that he's like insanely good at well i took (laughs) a i took a dslr this camera that i had bought for like my use in my mfa program so i'd spent like basically all my savings to buy this camera and this really nice lens and i like tied it to the outside of the cable car without asking permission <laughs> just reached out the window and like just hoped that it would stay yeah oh man and i was like and i had of course i had my hand on the sh- the shoulder strap that won yeah. on the camera just as a fail safe right but i was like i mean this thing could like drop and like swing and like break the lens like yeah. i was just like i hope it holds and it did and i was like well Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this a couple times because it only cost fifty cents per ride. Yeah. Until I get the right angle, because the first time I did it, I think I aimed the camera straight down. Okay. And it was just water the entire time. Right. And I was like, that's not very interesting. So like, I had to keep doing it until I found how to like. But it was also wasn't easy that like angle it. Right. Because I had no control over when the cable car would depart. Uh huh. And I had to like basically run on, get ahead of everyone else that was trying to commute back home after work and like reach out the window, tie it on really quick, close the window and then just stand there and hope that my camera didn't fall down into the water, you know? So like, but anyway, it ended up being like a very low tech, um, very cheap shot that looked, I mean, at that time, like most people that got shots like that were like hiring a helicopter, you know? Oh, for sure. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I thought, I thought it was like, good for you, man. it's not luck either. It sounds like you you found the shot you were looking for. You were adjusting for that shot. Well, and, you know, I think that's, I mean, and just that whole DIY approach of, like, trying to find a practical, cheap solution. Right. Is, I mean, and that, that continues to my work today because I definitely don't work on, like, an industry model where I have, like, most of my films are made on a budget of, like, gas money and whatever equipment I happen to own. You know what I mean? Like, while other people yeah. have, like, they try to find funding from distributors or, um, you know, they they hire producers and people that can try to, like, write grants for them and things like that. Like, I, I'm lucky in the sense that, like, I currently work at the University of Mississippi where I have a full-time salary um, that I don't have to pay myself with my films. Mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of like working documentarians, like they have to they have to really like get out there and shake the trees before they can even start working on a film. Right. You know, so I'm lucky in that sense that like my day job provides my standard of living and then I can go out and make films and I don't have to like complete them on a specific deadline because I'm going to run out of money and won't have anything to eat by the time I get my grant money or whatever, you know? So like, so I'm really lucky in that sense, but the downside of it is I'm not eligible for a lot of grants that are out there for Mm. working filmmakers because up until this year, all the films I was making as part of my job at the university belonged to the university. Mm -hmm. So with the university owning the copyright to those projects, um, a lot of the funding that's available for filmmakers, they, I just wasn't eligible for it. Yeah. And it makes sense, right? Right. Like, yeah. Cause those people are independent and they don't have the resources that you do. Have. Ex- exactly. Yeah. So it's interesting now because like I, this year got a job as a tenure track professor and I'm not making films for the university any longer. Like mm-hmm. my, my job at the university is teaching. 
Yeah. I have to produce work, but it's the same thing as like an English professor who writes a book. Right. Like if you write a book and you're an English professor, that book is your intellectual property. Yeah. It's yours to like, or it's the publishers and your, you know, like whatever deal you you sign. So I don't have to worry about that so much anymore. So it's kind of opened this new world to me now where it's like, okay. But the downside is I also don't have um, the university necessarily funding my films. (laughs) Yeah. So I have a little bit of like money that I can use each year, but it's not quite what I had in the past. So you're still working off that DIY aesthetic in a lot of ways. Yeah. Long story short is like, (laughs) I think I'm, I, I, I'm kind of glad not to be in the industry model. Right. And like, I appreciate that those folks work really hard, but I think I kind of, um, have found my way of doing things. Yeah. And it's very much influenced by the influence of punk rock and kind of do it yourself and like find a solution that's like your way of doing it, whether it's the right way or not. Yeah. And, um, you know, not, not necessarily taking no for an answer. And, you know, that doesn't mean like towards other people, just towards like your own relationship to your work. Like don't be discouraged because you don't have a hundred thousand dollars to buy this piece of equipment, go make it out of cardboard and duct tape and Just duct try, tape try it to, to the side of a, <laughs> right. out of a cable car. Exactly. Hold the strap. Exactly. Yeah. So that's that's kind of been my approach and like that first film Yangtze Drift that I made like I'm still very proud of it. I mean yeah. I actually like love to show that film. I love I haven't watched it in maybe like a couple years but like it's beautiful. Thank you. It really is. It, it's stunning. And it took me a minute to figure out like um cuz I didn't really read anything about it. I just found it I think on your Vimeo and I, and I hit play. And we can maybe share this yeah with the people who are listening now i'll throw it up on on the page sure yeah share any links that i mean yeah. i'm happy to share my work i want people to watch my work so i just watched it not not really knowing what i was getting into if this was going to be a documentary or if this was going to be you know uh, just a short film or what it was and as it was going it progressed and i started to figure out like okay we're along this body of water and all of these people are just living mm-hmm. along mm-hmm. this water and it's just really beautiful and fascinating and you um yeah you just capture real life thanks there's there's some subtext to it too that like if i tell you and you watch it again you might catch it i don't think people necessarily catch it at first but like because i was in school at the time thinking a lot about documentary and the meaning of documentary and Mm -hmm. the meaning of like 
these relationships with people and um, mediation. So, and also just thinking about my role as a white man with a camera going to a culture that's not my own mm-hmm. and capturing those images and then bringing them back to where I'm from and presenting. So, so right. this idea of like representation of culture. Mm-hmm. Um, if you watch that film, one thing you'll start to see um, along the way is people pointing their cameras at me. Yeah. I yeah. noticed that the first one is, I think you, you're shooting uh, this guy who's sort of leaning out a window, smoking a cigarette. And then you notice he takes a photo uh, of something off to his right with his phone and he's kind of doing that for a minute and i'm like oh he's about to turn it on he's about to turn it on us and he does he slowly turns it around and finally takes one of you and yeah he kind of sneaks the shot you know? right yeah and like but but then there's this like unspoken dialogue amongst us right it is it's really powerful and then it happens again on it looks like a like a ferry boat mm-hmm. yeah that you're mm-hmm. on the top of and then Obviously, people are taking a lot of photos because it's, it's scenic. And then someone is just, you're filming them like holding their phone up and taking a photo of you. And, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I like that idea. And like, I start to think about like, uh, yeah, this place is like both a life source for mm-hmm. like historically for this place. Right. I mean, it's obvious. Like, this is why all these cities developed along the river. It's because it's where the natural water was, right? Like this is where crops could grow. This is where people could survive, right? right? Um, But over time, as, you know, infrastructure has grown up, like you don't need to live by the river any longer. So now it's become a point of tourism. Mm -hmm. So like the very opening of the film, you're in this like kind of ancient seeming, like very traditional kind of town where like people are still like, it's kind of like the Venice of China. Like right. people are taking their boats around this little village. Um, by the end of the film, it's kind of revealed that like that place is kind of like colonial Williamsburg. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a tourist construct. Yeah. I'm going to go visit the place where they do things like they used to. And it's, it's a, it's a tourist destination. Right. So like, you hear this man with this beautiful voice that he actually sounds kind of like a woman, like singing these songs as he rows across the river. Yeah. Um, But he's actually just paid to do that every day, you know, like he's taking tourists down, down through, through the, they're called water towns and there, there's several of them and they've become a great uh, part of Chinese tourism economy. And I was sort of fascinated by that too. You know, it's like, it's like, here are these, um, small water villages that were part of the traditional landscape here that are by the river, but now they're actually just, you know, part of Chinese. T- and, and the people you see there are also Chinese, right? Like right. it's not constructed for people like us. Yeah. Like it's actually, it's just people from, I guess, inland who mo- come to modern see the water. Chinese people who right. just want to go see the way things used to be, you know? Yeah. But then the other thing you see along the way in the film is like white people, right? Yeah. Cause there's also a lot of white people in China. It's become, it's, starting to become more and more international there. Right. Even though it is still basically a monoculture society. But I, I kind of like this idea of like, I'm going to take a documentary that I tell people that I made about China and show it in America. And then they're going to have to look at other white people. Yeah. You know, and like kind of reckon, reckon with that for a bit. And, but it's also part of modern China. So at the end of the day, like, 
there's all these little things happening in the film. But the other thing I sort of like about it is that um, it's 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 also a construct like. I've set you up to believe that you're seeing like this traditional water life in China. And maybe you think that's how things still are. But by the end, it's revealed that like just like a documentary film, I've taken you on a journey that isn't the same or, you know, we could use the word authentic, like capital A authentic, like a documentary sort of like steps in place of the actual lived experience, right? Mm. Like we watch things and like we learn from them or we like we watch movies that like give us an experience that we haven't had in our real life, whether that's a documentary or like a narrative film. And like, I sort of wanted to acknowledge that with that film too. It was like, this is the river. This is real life that happens in China, but it's only what I've captured and what I've presented from my interests and my role as a person with a camera and it may be very different for you if you go there and like live it in your real life, you know? So, right. so it's, you know, it's, it's curated. Like a museum is also curated, right? Mm-hmm. So like histories are curated by the people who write the books and build the museums. And I think people think documentary a lot of times is like, you know, like somehow is like the authentic statement on like what, re- what really happened. And we're used to that through like PBS documentaries and things like that, that sort of yeah. like take this tone, like they're teaching you a lesson. And I wanted to have a film that maybe presented more questions than answers and just allowed you as the audience to sort of like try to figure out what was going on for yourself and not right. have a voice of God narrator that comes in and tells you about the river and the histories. That, so, so it's a lot like if you were to travel to China yourself, not being someone that speaks the language natively and like, you're you're learning things as you see them and maybe you don't quite understand everything along the way. And that's that's kind of what I was going for for that film was just sort of like want people at the end to sort of feel like they did experience something, but also acknowledge that like someone made that. And I'm not, you know, not not 100 percent sure that that would be the same experience I would have if I went there. Yeah, that's a really so, good point. Yeah. yeah, it's all about perspective, right? Totally, totally. Yeah, and uh, that's really interesting what you're saying about uh, history is edited and art. You know, it's it, what we think of as art and history, what we think of as truth, even because we base it all on those things, has gone through so much editing. And I mean, we see it from this certain perspective, you know, this sort of. Absolutely. I yeah. mean, you know, they always say like history is written by the winners or whatever, right. but like, you know, it's like. I never thought of a documentary as being that as much until now. But even though I was just a subject of a documentary and when I watch it, I go like, Oh, he's a great filmmaker. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I, to me, I'm like, he actually made me look interesting. Cause I don't think, it, <laughs> I don't think going into a studio and making an, an album is particularly that interesting to me. It's like work, you know, it's fun, but it's like work. And I wouldn't think that there would be an interesting story to tell there, but I feel like the filmmaker actually made an interesting story to tell. Right. And, and there's so, an editing process, right? He was there for a lot of stuff that's not in the film. Yeah. And like he could have chosen different moments and it might apparently not have like a hundred extra hours of footage or something. Yeah. Right. So. And that's, you know, and I'm kind of going through that with the film I'm working on right now is like filtering through just mountains of material, trying to 
both honor the story that exists, but also make something that's going to keep people's attention as they watch for, you know, an hour, an hour and a half or however long the film ends up being, you know? Right. Yeah. So, um, so there's a process to it. And like, I, I love that it's like this balance between one of the things I love about documentary and the way, and the reason I've sort of made that my life's work is that it is a balance between, um, art and documentation of real life. Right. And that there's a way that you can sort of like not in a journalistic way, but really through an artist's lens still honor and capture the peoples and the culture, the people in the culture that, um, are part of our experience Mm -hmm. in this time right now, you know? And I think that that's, really important and really interesting because it really allows us to like see ourselves in different ways and connect to the humanity that maybe like link. So like you watch that film about people on the river in China and you think about the Mississippi river and you can see some connections there. So you can see yourself in it, even if you've never been to China yourself personally, you know, and that's, I think that's kind of beautiful and it's, you know, why I think we all love art, you Mm -hmm. know, why we listen to music is like, we, Yes, it has a good tune and, you know, maybe it makes me want to dance. But like at the end of the day, there's also like lyrics there that maybe like I can connect to. And it may not be what the musician was actually writing about specifically. Right. Like depending on, you know, what the lyrics are like, like they may be open to sort of different interpretations where people can find themselves in it, whether it's exactly what the lyricist went through in their life or not, you know. So I, I think that's. Hopefully there's a way that documentary can kind of exist in that same way as well. So where did the DIY, you know, idea come from for you? Like, where were you first exposed to that? Was that in North Carolina? Yeah. As a kid or? So I was, I was fairly like just kind of normal mainstream kid up until when I went to middle school. Mm -hmm. And honestly, like I just hadn't really, I mean, you know, I I feel like for most people, like you kind of start to find your identity in middle school. Yeah. Like. You're just a, like you like all the stuff the other kids like, like yeah. up through like sixth grade, you know, like yeah. it's just sort of like, OK, this is what's on the radio or this is what's on TV. Like 
everybody else is watching. I guess that's what I like too, you know? Right. And like, um, I really didn't have like close friends necessarily, like that I hung out with a lot. And then I got to middle school and, you know, there were a couple different elementary schools in my county, but they all, all those kids end up going to the same middle school. Hmm. So suddenly there's this influx of like all these kids I'd never met before from my same county. And I'm like, whoa, these people seem really interesting. Like these people live. Where do they come from? (laughs) Yeah. yeah, Like where do they come from? And like, what are they up to? And like, the funny thing is, is like the next town over from where I grew up has um, ski slopes and is one of the only places in North Carolina that has ski slopes. I didn't know there were any ski slopes in North Carolina. They're small. They're kind of bunny hills to people that actually (laughs) ski. But like, you know, in North Carolina, I think it's but like snowboarding had started to become a thing around Mm -hmm. that time. It's like early 90s. And that's when um, it got in the Olympics and got really big. yeah, Yeah. So a couple of these kids were like snowboarders and like were like. They just look different, dress different, yeah. kind of like they carried themselves differently, you know? And I was like, and, and you know, the snowboarders, because we're not in Montana, like there's a very short snow season in yeah. North Carolina. We're also skateboarders. Yeah. And like, that's, that's the crowd I sort of became interested in. Mm-hmm. And um, this dude that was in my science class was a snowboarder. And like, I started talking to him and like, he made me a mixtape and brought it to me. And like, I remember specifically taking, it was unlabeled. Like he didn't write any of the band names or song names or anything. <laughs> it w- and it didn't even have like the plastic shell box. It was just he a just, tape. He just handed me like a raw tape. Yeah. And honestly, it might've just been something that he had that like, he was like, here, just take this. I'm done with it, you yeah. know? Yeah. But like I took it and I remember like going to mow my mom's yard and putting this in and like, I was like, this is like night, like, like this is like jet fueling me <laughs> pushing this lawnmower right now. And going back, like I know what was on it because I've come to love these bands, but like it was Minor Threat, uh-huh. Black Flag, yeah. Agent Orange, right. The Descendants, Fugazi. Um, I think there was like one more band on there, but like, and and circle jerks. And this and, guy was a couple of years older than you, maybe. He's the same age as me. Same age. But he had just had a different lived experience because he lived in the town where all the ski slopes were. Uh-huh. So right. like he was around like older people. Yeah. He was around people that were like sort of into that sort of thing. So like he had had a few more years like to be exposed to that kind of stuff. And then he handed me this tape and, you know, like I listened to it over and over again. And then finally, like ask him, like, you know, what song is this? What song is this? And like yeah. I ended up going to the record store at the mall in Boone yeah, and buying black flag, dead Kennedys and descendants tapes. Yeah. And that was the start of it all. Um, and you know, in our town, there wasn't a lot of people like that, but there Mm -hmm. was enough that like we sort of had our little pack and that's kind of who I hung with all through middle school and high school. And we were also, by the time we got to high school, kind of the theater kids too. Yeah. Um, because it was a small town, like anyone who wasn't like on the football team or like the popular kids, like basically like we had our own sort of like pack of freaks. So not everyone were, was punk. Right. And not like 
just we were just the outcasts you know what i mean so we were that's kind of how it was where i grew up too it was yeah. like all of all of the the different kids all hung out together because there wasn't enough to have a group otherwise totally so yeah. we were like <laughs> snowboarders the kids that like kicked the hacky sack out yeah during like school lunch hour right um the punk kids the kids who were like probably wasted all the time on the yeah. weekends you know and like like we were all just sort of like in a pack together and like we all sort of like the same music and i remember seeing a dude actually in middle school when i started to get into this stuff wearing a danzig shirt and i was like that guy is terrifying i was like <laughs> i was like that guy seems cool but i'm not sure if i'm ever going to be that extreme you know because <laughs> yeah, yeah. like yeah. especially at that time like all the danzig stuff was like all like upside down crosses yeah. and like goat heads and, and i was just like right. This is like, a, a step too far, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I just didn't understand. And yeah. like, but like, I also think that like, that's what made it cool, you know? It's right. like, it was a little bit like too extreme. Yeah. I don't know if you want to talk about it at all, but did you grow up religious or anything? Or? Uh, I did. Like my, my mom, like we went to like Southern Baptist church yeah. and Honestly, by the time I was 12, I started questioning it. And yeah. I was just sort of like, I'm not sure if I believe in this anymore. Yeah. And like, I started asking questions and none of those questions were really um, answered in a way That's that about I the felt time like it was starts. satisfying. It's like the same thing. It's like middle school, you know, it's like you're trying to yeah. ask questions and find yourself. Yeah. And, and, and I think in particular, like in, in just that sort of like the way Southern Baptist works, like it was like our way or the hell way (laughs) and like and like that to me just seemed like kind of elitist and kind of like ignorant to like other cultures in the world even though i'd never experienced those cultures myself i was just like yeah but what if you're born in like a place where you're only exposed to buddhism right if you're like and like, boy, you've you've got a chance to know Jesus before you die, and if you don't accept him, then you're going to hell. And I was like, that just doesn't like doesn't that seem doesn't fair. seem fair. Like right. that doesn't seem like this all loving God that you're talking about. So like, so like I I just sort of decided that like I felt like organized religion just wasn't for me, and that that was like this idea of like trying to like convert people and that if they didn't accept your way of doing things, then that they were the outcast. Like Mm -hmm. I just, to me, like just seemed like it wasn't um, the way that I saw the world. So I just, I disassociated from all of it. And, and to this day, like, I I think I'm fairly comfortable with saying like at this point, I'm pretty much an atheist and have been for, you know, most of my life, but like it pretty much, I think I was maybe agnostic at the, at the start of it, you know, like, I mean, I think, you know, like I, grew up in a house where I was taught to like pray when things went wrong. And like, I just um, think the more that I experienced the world and the more I saw the way other cultures did things, I was just like, you know, like, I think I probably just feel more comfortable believing that we just turn to dust when we die. <laughs> so, so, so that's you really get to work kind of punk rock at heart, you know, from a pretty young age, it seems like. Mate, so. I think I'm just wired that way. I'm just know. wired that way. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Know. Well, we know where the DIY aesthetic comes from. So how did you, I feel like we missed a gap here. So how did you end up in China making mm. this film between North Carolina and there? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I, when I was working at the community college, I traveled to Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Um, Hong Kong at that time, this is around 2007. Okay. Uh, 
had just within was about 10 years out from being handed back to China from Great Britain. Yeah. So for those who don't know, like, you know, China was um, British for 100 years Mm -hmm. because of the Opium Wars. So that was like part of the treaty with the Opium Wars was like, okay, you can have this little island that means nothing for 100 years. Right. And then in that 100 years, it became like an economic powerhouse and really the gateway to Asia. Like, um, and people in Hong Kong, you know, grew up. It, during that time with British passports and mm-hmm. like sort of imagining themselves as like, I mean, actually a lot of like sort of identity crisis in a lot of ways. Right. Because they were culturally Chinese, mm-hmm. but they were nationally British. Right. And then when the handover happened in 97, like it like China was still um, much more communist than it is now, although things have started to sort of turn back that way in the last five years or so. But like. People weren't happy about it. They yeah. and like England actually extended, um, if I remember correctly, like there was a time that people could kind of get out, mm-hmm. like and move to England, and they could stay there if they wanted to and keep yeah. their British passports. So there, were, there was a little bit of flight at that time, like people leaving, and people came to the U.S. as well. And I think the U.S. extended maybe some like green cards and things mm-hmm. like that as well. I, I don't know all the ins and outs of it because I wasn't paying attention. But point being is, when I went, it was still very English friendly. And it seemed like a place I could go in Asia and like get along pretty well without understanding the language. Right. Because most people that were my age or older mm-hmm. spoke completely fluent English with a British accent. Yeah. You know, so like I went there and I loved my it. My mother in law is like that. Yeah. She's Malaysian Chinese. Oh, right. She speaks with a British accent. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's kind of wild, right? Especially right. like when they're in America, because it's like you you're used to seeing like Asian Americans that like just sound like Americans, but right. it's like, oh, you sound cultured. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, like, yeah. Well, part of it was her education, uh, you know, the schools that she was educated in, in, in Malaysia and New Zealand. Right. Also. So. And yeah. I do mean cultured in terms of like more cultured than me, you know, yeah, <laughs> right? Absolutely. Like not, not like. Oh, hey, I'm from down the road in Mississippi. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> um. So, so yeah, I went and I loved it and took some amazing photos you know, and came back and like, I think I had like a photo show that like, mm-hmm. like showing some of my photos that I took in Hong Kong and some of the islands around Hong Kong. And I was like, you know, I really want to go back at some point and maybe I will just keep going like in the summers or something and take some photos in in Asia and also felt kind of guilty, not really understanding the history or the culture of the place. I went as a pure tourist. Mm-hmm. And um, around that time, it was about a year before the Beijing Olympics, Chinese had started to become this sort of like hot thing, like Japanese was, you know, in like the 80s and 90s. It's like, yeah, China is going to be the next, you know, major economic force in the world and people should learn Chinese. Um, And the community college where I was teaching photography started to offer Mandarin classes. So I was like, you know, Hong Kong, they speak Cantonese. I just went there probably the next time I go, I'd like to go to the mainland if yeah. I can get a visa to go over. So why don't, why don't I take a Mandarin class? Yeah. Like at least I'll understand a little bit more there and they're going to be a little bit less English accessible anyway. Yeah. So if I learn a little bit, at least I can like check into my hotel or take a taxi or something, right. you know? Yeah. And I started learning Chinese as this weird hobby <laughs> wow. because I took this class and I 
kind of excelled at it. Yeah. I mean, I took Spanish all through high school and college and like can't speak a word of it now. Really? And That's it interesting. Was, it was mostly just learning for the tests and then I would forget it. Huh. You know? Yeah. But I also think there was something that unlocked in my mind about learning a third language. Mm-hmm. Where I where finally I think learning languages made sense to me. Yeah. So when I was studying Spanish, it was truly just like learning math equations. Like it was yeah. like, this is the problem. This is the solution. Say this word and someone will put like. A it's pink, also like a the way they friend. teach it in American public schools also. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But then when I got into the Chinese class, I was like, oh, these are just vocabulary words. <laughs> yeah. Just like I can say pants or trousers. I can also say kudza. Yeah. And that's just another word for pants. Yeah. You know, and like, I don't know why, like, it's kind of embarrassing that it took me like, you know, a decade for that to happen. Yeah. But like, I was truly just learning words to like pass a test when I was learning Spanish. Yeah. But, but being in the Chinese class, like I was like, it was actually fun. It was enjoyable. And then I went back to China in 2008 and I was actually able to do some things with the language and that's when it all opened up. Like I was like totally addicted to it because I was like, oh my gosh, I can like communicate with people in a yeah. language that I didn't know a year ago. And and then what did that open up? Well, that opened up making friends in the country. Right. It opened up um, the ability to like travel more and more into the country. And then I came back to America after that trip and I met my wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was teaching at a uh, community college or not a community college an elementary school. Uh, so she was a English professor in China okay. who had joined a program with the Chinese government to come teach Chinese to American children. <laughs> it was actually kind of this propaganda program that yeah. the Chinese government was doing at the time right? Um, where she came and spent two years in high point, North Carolina um, in an elementary school teaching uh elementary school kids Chinese. Wow. And I, through my um, freelance photography work, had one of my clients was the local school system and they would have me do PR work for them and they took me to her classroom. Yeah. And I met her basically on the job and like we kept in communication after I came in. In North Carolina. In North Carolina. And then, you know, we... um, you know, several years later, got married and like now I have family in China. So, yeah, um, by the time we weren't married yet when I started my MFA. But uh, I did know her parents and I actually went when I was working on Yangtze Drift and stayed with her parents alone. Oh, okay. like she wasn't even yeah. over there. And like and like they were so nice to me and like I actually like love staying with them. And she was like, well, you stayed with my parents like a week and I wasn't even there. Like, are you all right? And I was like, yeah, that was yeah. great. You know, like I had a great time. That's awesome. And and they can't speak English at all. Yeah. So like that was also like more language improvement for me. Because yeah. like, you know, it's different when you're like staying in a hostel. Right. And like I'm going out with my camera every day and just walking. Around. Like I don't have to. You're talk not striking to up conversations. Not unless I want much. to. Yeah. yeah. But right. if you're like staying in someone's house and they know that you're. And you're like, dating their daughter. Yeah. Like yeah. You, you have to have a conversation. You know. <laughs> yeah. Right. So. Yeah. Um, and then about the time I was graduating from Duke, it was actually a little bit before. Uh, 
we got offered to go over and work for Duke's campus in China, like the two of us, because um, both she and I had been working with the provost that Duke had been working on that project. And they knew that we both were going to be available because I was graduating, that we both spoke the language and yeah. basically said, you know, we've got this campus opening up. Um, if you guys want to go over and work there, um, we need people. So we got jobs and moved to China in 2014 uh, in this city, Kunshan, which is right outside of Shanghai, and worked for Duke's campus there for several years and um, started to look to come back to the U.S. around 2017. And um, I found the job here in Mississippi and I came first and uh, just sort of got the lay of the land, made sure that. It was actually a place we wanted to live. And then six months later, um, she and my daughter came over and um, we've been here ever since. So um, it's kind of an interesting journey to like go from Shanghai, which is one of the largest cities in the world. Yeah. To Oxford, Mississippi. And I'd never been here. And my, my first day in Oxford was literally the night before I started my job. Wow. It's like I flew from Shanghai to North Carolina, bought a car got the few boxes that I hadn't taken to Goodwill when I moved to China that were still in storage at my dad's house. Basically, it was like my record collection yeah, and like my stereo. <laughs> it was like the only things it's I didn't a, give wow. away when I'm, you know? Yeah. And like got those and drove here. And um, the next morning I started my job and I was like, I don't know if this is a mistake, but we'll see how it goes. And actually ended up being great. I'm still here and love it and have found like this great job um, where I get to make these films that, um, again, don't necessarily need to subscribe to like an industry model. Mm -hmm. Um, And the main thing you're doing now is the uh, Southern Punk Archive, which is kind of the next thing I wanted to ask you about. How How did that start out? Well, I'll say that's not the main thing I'm doing for my job. Not the main thing. It is doing, it but. is sort of a sidecar, but like it is something that I've It's incorpor- the first it's the first my first introduction to you. Actually, I think you had moved to town, but I didn't know you because mm. you only had your stuff in a car and it just sort of <laughs> thing didn't know anybody. But I saw this thing pop up on Instagram called the Southern Punk Archive and I was yeah. like, "What is this? This is and it's some guy in Oxford, like what, what is, what, what's going on here? So how did, how did you start out with doing that? Um, so my first project, when I came to Oxford, um, I would, I worked for the center for the study of Southern culture at the university of Mississippi. And mm. the center hired me to be a filmmaker, to tell stories of the American yeah. South. And, um, so thinking about like, what kind of film do I want to make? Like what kind of story do I want to tell? And I came across this band in Memphis yeah. called Negro Terror. And it's yeah. an all African-American punk band. And I was like, this is an interesting story. And I looked them up and they had this video on YouTube where they had taken a song from this um, white power band from the 80s, Screwdriver. And yeah. they, they had sort of flipped it in terms of, first of all, just by playing it themselves, but also they made this video where they paired it with um, news footage of um, police brutality. Right. And um, against black people. Yeah. Against black people. And like, and like it just blew my mind up and I was like, okay, not only are these guys interesting, they're smart Mm -hmm. and they've got a cool message. 
I really want to meet them and I hope that they'll let me make a film about them. Yeah. And it might just be like a five minute little profile thing. I, I have no idea. So I contacted them and it took some negotiating, like actually months of negotiating because they were just like, do we really want to let some white dude from Mississippi with a camera like come hang out with us? Like that doesn't seem like a good idea, you know? He's like, from Memphis, we're totally not trusting this. Yeah. Well, and and honestly, because they did things like cover the screwdrivers, like they were online trolling Nazis, yeah, like neo Nazis right. and like white. So they thought maybe you were a plant or something. Yeah, someone that yeah. might be coming to like right. just get an in with them or like because. Honestly, like they were invited to Charlottesville. Really? Like before that event happened in Charlottesville, the Unite the Right rally. Yeah. Someone reached out to them, invited them to come, quote unquote, play a show there. Whoa. And like they thought it seemed sketchy. So like so like things like that were not uncommon for them, like people reaching out that mm-hmm. like seem like they might be nefarious. Right. And that's what they thought I was at first, I think. So like um but I did go to Memphis without my camera and met them, went to one of their shows and like talked to them. And like, I, like, I think because of our, honestly, it was because of our shared experience in punk. Yeah. That they were like, okay, we see where you're coming. You from. knew, you knew your stuff. And so, yeah, you're not yeah. just some like stuff shirt professor that's right. like wants to come like that, that, that's the other thing they, I don't think they like, is this just some academic that wants to like write a paper about like black people in yeah. Memphis? You know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. So like they really didn't know what my intentions were. So like I, you know, like especially I'm emailing them from like a University of Mississippi, like email address or whatever. Right. Like, you know, that, that carries a certain historical like weight as well. Well, it is Ole Miss.edu. So. Well, that's what I'm saying. Exactly. You know, this yeah. university, like this place, like right. there's a lot of like troubled history here. And, you know, to certain people, like that history is going to be the first thing they think of when they see right. that name, you yeah. know. So, so you know, like people think like, oh, you're a university, like you work at the university. That's got to be like an in everywhere you go. Uh, not necessarily yeah. like like especially if you want to work with like marginalized communities yeah like this is a place that might be responsible for like some of that marginalization you know right. so like yeah so so um so yeah like trust is a huge thing when it comes to like documenting others and mm-hmm. and then the representation of them on film yeah um, and then you've got the other like added layer of like these people are artists and they also like have their art that they're putting out in the world. And now they like you're going to filter that right in some way and like represent it in your film. So yeah. so these are all conversations that we had and we ended up working together and we made this beautiful film together about the band. And um, we did this really cool project where I was sort of thinking about like. You know, how can this film be more of a collaboration between the band and myself? And we I edited the film in a way that allowed the band to sort of play live when the film was screened. Mm -hmm. The first several times that the film was shown to the world, that's how we did it. So now if you go watch the film online, there's concert footage that you see. But when we screened the film the first several times, actually the screen would go black and the band was set up in front of the screen and they played live in front of the screen. 
And we did that at um, the Indy Memphis Film Festival. We did it here at the Oxford Film Festival. We traveled to a community center in Nashville and did it that way. And we had actually planned an entire East Coast tour with the film to do it exactly like that as well. And the singer, Omar Higgins, singer and bassist, um, he actually got a staph infection and didn't have health insurance and because of his financial situation, didn't go to the hospital and ended up passing away. Mm -hmm. Um, And honestly, like if you watch the film now, it starts with his memorial service. Mm -hmm. I watched it today. I thought that must have been what it was. So I went back and filmed the memorial service after he passed away and cut it into the film. Yeah. But I wanted that to be up front. The first thing that you see in the film Mm -hmm. So that it's not like a tearjerker, like emotional sort of manipulation at the end of the film where like you're meant to feel like I wanted people to recognize like this person passed away, but this is what they stood for. This is like so it it actually ends up being more of an epitaph type experience where you go into it knowing and then you get to sort of like enjoy it a little bit more, I yeah. think, and just sort of celebrate Omar and like that band um, for what it was um, from the beginning, instead of it being sort of a constructed sort of like emotional roller coaster. And um, yeah, it was it was really interesting because like the film had already played at film festivals and was already out there. And it's like, you know, like it was kind of a weird thing to like go and re-edit it like almost a year after the fact. Yeah. But that's that's what ended up happening. And like I had no idea when I was making that film that it would end up being sort of like encapsulate like almost the entire sort of career of that band. Yeah. Um, Have the other guys uh, gone on to do anything after this? Yeah, they have a new band called Seasoned Assist. OK. And um that's Rico, the guitarist, and Raid, the drummer. And then um, Omar's brothers, you'll see in the film, they have a reggae yeah. um, band called yeah. um, Chinese Connection. And they have continued that band as well. Okay, so, cool. so, you know, Omar's legacy lives on through those guys. And they're, they're all Memphis musicians and will be forever and continue to do creative and interesting things. Um, but as far as that project goes, like it was just, you know, like – could have never gone into it thinking that, you know, what, what happened was going to happen. But what it made me realize is a couple things. Like I'm spending this time interviewing people just like we are right now. Right. And I really appreciate that you like started at the beginning. It's like, you know, basically like, obviously it's hard to like in an interview, get someone's entire life story. Yeah. But like you didn't have to ask me about my hometown. You didn't have to like we could have started with like Oxford, Mississippi, you know? Yeah. And like all it really costs to do that is time. Yes. Like absolutely. we're we're not in a world anymore where like we're paying for like inches of tape. Yeah. Um, you know, which is what a lot of like people that did this kind of work had like they had to think about the costs of every minute right. when they were sitting down with someone. So I had two hours of interview footage with Omar. Yeah. That, I, that obviously like a lot of it didn't make it into the film, uh-huh. but I was able to give that to his family. Yeah. And I was able to sort of think about like, where could that live, where it could be seen by the world because it's not in the film. And that was really the catalyst for the punk archive. Like, okay. So that's yeah. a very long story to sort of get to your question that you asked originally, but it was just like, you know, as a documentarian, I have this privilege of like going into people's homes, going into people's lives, spending time with them 
And, you know, journalists often like go in and they want to know the answers to the three questions about the news of the day that's going to like sort of like be very specific and very tailored to like right. a given topic. Yep. And like a lot of filmmakers do that, too, that do documentary work. It's like this is a film about the river. Tell me about the river. Mm hmm. Like you're a, you, you're like a boatman. Tell me about that experience, you yeah. know, and they don't go back to the hometown. They don't go back to what did your parents do for a living like that. Right. But like, you know, for me, like I can go in and if I'm interviewing somebody for a film about a specific thing, I can ask those questions, but I can also sort of try to do like more of like a typical sort of like oral history sort of backstory on like who they are as a person, what made them who they are, mm -hmm. how did they get to where they are now? And, and I just don't think I thought about it that way until I made the film about Negro terror and Omar and like, just sort of thinking like how important this could be because it may be the last time some, or the only time anyone's ever right. sat down and asked those questions. And it's changed my approach to my work. It's also changed um, sort of my ideas in terms of like just thinking about this culture that's inspired me so much through my life, like punk and DIY culture. And it's like, okay, I've already had friends who have passed away mm -hmm. and there were shoe boxes full of like, you know, photos and demo tapes and band stickers and like that their wife or parents threw away because they just thought it was like, no one's going to want this. Yeah. And those might've been the only copies of those materials that existed in the world because it was already like, 10 or 15 years old yeah and that kind of ephemera like in a very small sort of uh diy culture there's you know there's probably only 300 of those things made in the first place yeah or less right often. yeah so to throw one like it's really like a valuable artifact from the beginning i think my first uh cd that i ever put out i made like 20 of them you right. know what i mean and i like handmade the cover and everything and they're maybe still one out there somewhere. I, I would be surprised if there is, but yeah, there's, there's tons of stuff like that. For sure. And you right. and I both know like people who were like professional artists who had nothing to do with punk rock that like make like limited edition handmade things that sell for like hundreds of dollars, yeah. if not more, you know, because the, that's, that's their career. Right. And these are things that like people made, like spent lots of time and labor yeah. and love and like sweat, like making like 20 or 30 of, and just gave it away. Yeah. You know, and and those, so so I wanted to try to have a repository for that type of stuff. So I reached out to um, Greg Johnson at the University Archives and Special Collections because he had been managing the Blues Archive, which mm -hmm. is, you know, like it's the largest blues collection in the world. Right. Yeah. And and, you know, like kind of world famous. And like I knew that he would be really I reached out to him for some advice because like yeah. i'm not an archivist by trade like I, yeah. I have no training in that but i was interested in trying to do something along those lines and he was like yeah i can, I can help you out and like he's been a great mentor and like advocate for this project and honestly like i'm sort of the mouthpiece but like he's he's the archivist you know like, i really want to get greg on the podcast sometime because he's such an interesting guy oh and, absolutely yes. and such a sweetheart too yes and and like i i really appreciate that he was willing to work with me on this project and you don't know how many times like at in southern studies and like within other departments at the university like people are like 
what is the Southern punk archive? Like yeah. what, what, what is punk rock? Like, right. I, you know, and like people don't quite get what it is. And I get that. Cause it's a little bit outside of like the frameworks of like the academic mission that they might be thinking about in terms of like research or scholarly writing. And it's like not a culture that people immediately associate with like needing to be preserved. Right. But, you know, if you think about it, I mean, punk rock's been around for like half a century now. And very influential on the culture, I would argue. For sure. In a lot of ways. I, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Like insanely influential on the culture. Yeah. Um, And, you know, like people have asked me this question as well, like who are part of punk rock is like, is it the death nail of punk rock when people like you start archives and you know what I mean? Like, it's like, it's like, I think they've asked that question since the beginning for sure. Yeah, for sure. But (laughs) you know, don't feel too bad. And you know, I mean, I get it. Like part of the tenets of punk rock is sort of like questioning authority Mm -hmm. and, you know, trying to do things that are like outside the system. Yeah. And this is sort of like, is this the system co-opting it or is this the system? Like, but I think it's the same thing as, you know, anything that's existed within our cult. Like if you want future cultures to know about it, you have to preserve it. Right. You know, and I feel like it, it is an important movement. It is an important influence on at this point, all of pop culture, you know, yeah. go listen to Olivia Rodrigo, go listen, to, you know, like. I mean, people who are in the mainstream that don't sound punk at all, but like the 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 lifeblood of punk runs through almost all popular music these days. You know, even country music. For now sure. I hear, you know, pop country songs. I will hear with the clash beats and things like mm-hmm. that. You know what I'm saying? There's just it's it's really permeated out to all parts. Of yeah, and you've got people like Jason Isbell that like yeah. has listened to like as much Mike Watt as he has Johnny exactly. Cash. You know, exactly. Yeah. So. so so, yeah, I think I think that, you know, it's just part of like maybe not the global cultural DNA, but definitely like mm-hmm. Western cultural DNA, you know, right. like and especially in like Britain and yeah. well, I mean, Europe and America, I guess. Europe and America. For yeah. Sure. Um, well, they got a good masthead with you. And I think it's important for someone like you who actually comes from that culture and cares about it and cares about the preservation of it. Like you don't seem to have any sort of other objective behind it. Uh, I guess it's one of those things, just like Omar and them, they see the university thing and they think, what? What is this? This is not punk rock. But, I mean, really? Right. There, there you are, you know? Well, thanks. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think I think the mistake I made, if you want to call it a mistake, is like being a little bit overly ambitious with thinking about the Southern punk archive because, like, the South is huge. The South is big. The South is very like, so like this, honestly, like the Southern punk archive could be my full-time job yeah, and probably could be the full-time job of like three or four people. If, if you really truly wanted to like gather and document like material, well, it depends from, on at what point you're trying to finish. Maybe this is, your, you know, there is, there is the work no, that will go throughout your life, you know? It is. And, you know, like I said, it's it is sort of like a percentage of what I do on the day to day. Um, It's definitely not something that I'm able to, like, spend hours on each week even. But it is a cool project that I feel like is worthy of doing and and no one else is doing it um, specifically in this way. One thing that I'm doing that I think makes what I do a little bit unique is like I'm also documenting the contemporary. So I'm not just trying to go gather like old ephemera. Um, Yes, I do that with Greg 
Yeah. And Greg is great about putting that into the special um, collections at the library. But I'm also taking my skills as a filmmaker and I'm going to shows and filming bands that are playing right now. Yeah. And, you know, in the couple of years that I've been doing that, like there's been several bands that I filmed that don't exist anymore. Yeah. You know, and like no one else filmed those bands. Right. And, you know, they might have put out a CD or they might have had a band camp with a couple of songs on it. But like you can still go watch those performances. And some of those some of those bands were like kids, you know, like yeah. 16. And like now they're like older and starting country bands. I'm and like sure you know there's I mean? video so, of the first show. My first band was like a hardcore band. And our first show was at a VFW hall in like Natchez. We drove all the way down there and I'm sure someone filmed. I know someone filmed it because I remember seeing it, but I have no idea where that film is. Right. That's like one of those things I, I wish that I could had that and could see it now. So. I'd love to have it in the archive. You know? <laughs> yeah. so like, and I have to ask, I have to ask my friends if they know where it is. So well, if know, anyone has it and, and honestly, you know, I mean, maybe yeah. this is the time to do it, but like open call, like if there's any cassette tapes vhs tapes like people have of house shows mm -hmm. like I, I really love in particular like looking for diy spaces and um, community spaces that like are non-traditional like music venues right and trying to tell that story like house shows things like that because yeah. i feel like i know those places exist all throughout the nation but like because the south is a lot more rural mm-hmm in less metropolitan areas like you got you've got a lot more of those sort of makeshift spaces that sort of connect the atlantas to the memphises you know what i mean yeah like and, one of the other places that i came up playing some of my first shows was at a uh, a framing shop mm -hmm. over in cleveland mississippi and it was just in the after the shop closed down you know there was a frame they like framed photos you know art and things like that and at the end of the night after the, they were closed in the back, they would host shows back there. Right. And it wasn't even a, a, you know, it wasn't even a DIY space. It was just like, that was the room that someone let us people use <laughs> to do shows. But it was known as like the frame, you know, the frame shop or something like that. I don't remember what we called it, but yeah. And I'm sure yeah. the bands that played there, like also played in Memphis and yeah, like, they did. And yeah. like, you probably felt like you had friends in Memphis cause you'd see them at those shows Absolutely. at the frame shop, you Absolutely. know, and then you could yeah. go up to Memphis and go to those shows and see the same people. Yeah. And like, to me, that's what's so interesting about this project is the network that exists. Yeah. Um, the community, and, it's and a real community. It really is. Yeah. And especially when it's like, you've got 20 kids in like every rural town, all throughout the South that all converge on the one house that like had a show in the state that weekend. Yeah. And then suddenly you've got an audience of like 80 or a hundred people like standing around in someone's living room, like watching like this band from like New York or Chicago right. or, or Cleveland, Mississippi, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And like, to me, I think that's, that's sort of the Southern punk archive. That's, that's the thing I'm interested in trying to do with it is sort of flesh out that, um, yeah, the connections and the sort of connective tissue between all these like sort of disparate areas that like people have sort of like made their because, you know, a lot of those towns like Cleveland probably didn't even have a bar that had shows or yeah, if they did, they weren't booking punk bands, you know? Right. Absolutely not. Yeah. 
they didn't like they didn't like punk bands playing at the bars. So kids had to do it in their living room, you yeah. know, or like and in the most shop. punk shows were all ages, you know. Then we weren't allowed to go in bars, so yeah, right. And that's the other thing, and yeah. that and you know, and that's the other branch of what I've done here in Oxford is um, started doing these punk flea markets. Yeah, um, because when I moved here, it was like, oh, Mississippi's famous for music. There's going to be tons of music around, you know, and like. In this town in particular, like there's just like it's kind of wild to me that like in a college town that has like twenty three thousand students, that there's two venues. Yeah. There's Proud Larry's, which is like a great small venue that like because it's a restaurant and a bar, all the shows start super late at night and it's not all ages. Right. And then you have like the Lyric, which is a more professional, like large right. venue that's like basically too large for a lot of bands to play at. For most bands. For yeah. most bands. Yeah. So you don't have that like DIY or all ages or like super small, super accessible venue. And you also don't have that middle sized venue that like national touring bands right. can play at that you find in most college towns. Yeah. So I was kind of bummed about that. And I was like, well, maybe something will happen. But what ended up happening is I ended up driving to Memphis all the time. Yep, absolutely. And I was like, you know, I know people in bands. I know some of these bands in Memphis would want to play in Oxford. Yeah. Why don't I just start trying to do some shows? Right. And that ended up not being as easy as I thought, like finding a venue, finding a PA system that and Finally, because I started the punk archive, I had some of the resources of the university behind me. I had a connection to the local arts council. And I was like, okay, this can be the springboard for trying to bring some of this culture to Oxford in a very accessible all ages format. Yeah. They can also be free, but it also allowed to sort of create this place for like artists who come from like punk traditions and also just artists who are just can't afford to buy a table at the double decker festival right. which is like hundreds of dollars yeah and um, only happens once a year it only yeah. happens once a year yeah so it sort of leveled the playing field as well where you have like you know college kids that are in the art program at the university that make like sculptures and jewelry and clothing that can get a table at the punk flea market for like 30 bucks yeah and then come like share their, I mean, just, you know, same thing. So it's like, I want people to come and share their music. I want people to come and share their zines, their crafts. Yeah. And it's really been a way to sort of promote that type of underground culture where people who, you know, are creative, but maybe don't have an outlet other than the internet yeah. to actually like engage with people in real life. And it's, it's been wildly successful and, the arts council has seen that and continue to support the project. So the thing that I do that helps with the archive is I also get to film all the performances that happen there. Yeah. And then that goes into the archive as well. And, you know, as I mentioned before, I think at least two of the bands that I filmed that don't exist any longer performed at the punk flea market yeah. and I filmed their sets there. And now that exists in the archive and people can go watch also, they, if you're not in the band and you were in the audience, you can go back and see yourself jumping around. And, yeah. you know, it's like so part of the experience to me, too, is always to try to film the crowd. Yeah. So it's like I want to spend time trying to capture the entire experience. Right. And that makes it a little bit different than like a music video, for example. 
Yeah. Because it truly is like an event that I'm trying to document. You're documenting this thing that is happening. Exactly. This part of the culture that exists, this community within the culture that's existed for a long time. For sure. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and for the people who are like 14, 15, 16 year old that come to the punk flea market, um, they're going to be able to go back and watch this when they're like 25, 30, 40 years old and be like that. That's, I was there. I was there. And that's what got, that's what, you know, like me, like what, I'd, I'd love yeah. to be able to go back and watch stuff that I went to when yeah. I was that age, you know. And I will say for sure. The first two or three times I did the punk flea markets. High school kids came and found me and thanked me. And told me that it was the only thing that happens in this town that they look forward to. Man, there was such a big need for it. And yeah, that's and, amazing. And that yeah. literally made me cry because yeah. I was just like, first of all, I'm I'm just some old dude. Like they didn't even have to talk to me. <laughs> yeah. But to like seek me out and thank me. So like I knew that it was real because of yeah. that. It wasn't like they were trying to like. Because they don't need to be cool in my eyes. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, the teenagers. They don't care. Totally. Yeah. So, like, for some teenager to go those extra steps to, like, find me and thank me for organizing it, like, I was just like, okay, it truly is appreciated. If for no other reason, like, that's why I'm going to keep doing this. Wow. That's so. amazing. Thank you. Thank you for coming by to talk to me. Yeah, man. About everything. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for being a creative dude. and doing what you do and keep it up well thanks for having me i look forward to um seeing your new creative efforts as well i know you have a new record out yeah and, i do um i'll give you a copy and take home with you okay you i'd love to have one yeah well there you have it folks my talk with my neighbor and friend john rash filmmaker photographer curator of the Southern Punk Archive. Y'all go look him up and check out his stuff. Until next time. Thanks for listening.